You're listening to Latin Experts, a podcast of Latino studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Latin Experts features the voices of faculty, staff, and students, as well as friends and alumni of the Department of Mexican American and Latina Latino Studies, the Latino Research Institute, and the Center for Mexican American Studies. Join us for this episode of Latin Experts. Episode 17, Why Has COVID-19 Hit Latino Communities So Hard? I'm your host, Karma Chavez, and this summer we're going to spend some time highlighting the important community-based research of affiliates of the Latino Research Institute, the youngest of the three arms of Latino studies at UT. Under the leadership of Professor Deborah Paramadina, the LRI's mission is to provide the infrastructure for the creation and dissemination of quality information about issues affecting Latino populations in the region, state, and nation. The LRI serves as a resource for communities, advocates, researchers, policymakers, and other stakeholders. Our first guest in this series is Rogelio Sainz, professor of demography at the University of Texas at San Antonio, where he was the dean of the College of Public Policy for nearly a decade. Recently, he won the American Sociological Association's Cox Johnson Fraser Award for scholarship and service to social justice. He's also an affiliate of the Latino Research Institute and has written extensively on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the Latino community. In one piece, he discussed how in April, we hit a horrible milestone as 100,000 Latinos in the U.S. had died from COVID-19. The majority of these deaths occurred in California and Texas. Although on first glance, it would seem that the number of Latinos who have died is proportionate to their population percentage, Professor Sines explains that the number obscures a devastating reality for Latino communities in the U.S. And I'm really excited to get to unpack some of these numbers with him here today. Professor Sines, welcome to Latin Experts. Uh, thank you very much uh, for the invitation, Professor Chavez. Definitely. And so I want to go ahead and jump in here with you uh, into your claim about COVID's disproportionate impact on Latino communities, even though it might seem otherwise at first glance. So so why has the impact been disproportionate? Yeah, this has been uh, the, the case that uh, that we saw early on. And I, I have been tracking down the, the deaths that were that were taking place from um, late uh, March of uh, 2020 into early um uh, April. And one of the things that was really coming out was that Latinos were disproportionately uh, overrepresented among people who were catching the, the virus, but they were disproportionately underrepresented when it came to the, uh, dying. Uh, so that kind of ra- uh, raised a red flag. But immediately that became very obvious that it was because Latinos are very much a younger population. So we tend to be disproportionately um, overrepresented among the younger age categories where the probability of death is lower. And uh, once you control those uh, uh, differences for age differences, back in uh, April or so, April, May of 2020, it was clear that Latinos were dying at rates that, are, that were about 3.4 times, 3.5 times higher than the than the white population. Those numbers have gotten, uh, uh, the disparities are still great but are somewhat smaller. Right now, we're talking about 2.3, 2.4 times 
higher death in the la Latino community compared to the white community. Well, and even if we're only talking 2.3 or 2.5, I mean, that's still very significant. So could you, can you still help us understand these numbers a, a, a little bit? And so Latinos are generally a lot younger overall, our average age. Uh, and yet when we started to look at the numbers related to death, even though initially it was one thing, as you said, and it was sort of lower, um, Latino deaths actually are falling in those lower ages. And could you talk a little bit about what that looks like? Yeah, and this is uh, this all goes back to the fact that Latinos have been disproportionately overrepresented among people that were on the front lines and were in essential industries uh, that didn't have the luxury of being able to work from home. So that we find, for example, uh, even right now, it's close to 90% of uh, whites who have died have been 65 year, years of age and older. Uh, in the case of the Latino population, it's about six, right now it's about 60%. So you have all these younger Latinos who are dying. Uh, right now, I think it's something like 28% of all Latinos who have died have been between the ages of 50 to 64. Uh, and that compares to about 10% uh, for the white population. And then uh, you also find that even among people less than 50 years of age, 11% or so of Latinos have died, uh, who have died have been less than 50 compared to about 2% for the uh, for, for the, for the white population. So you really see those disparities that you see that whites who have died have been disproportionately older individuals that are associated early on that it was older individuals who are dying, but Latinos have been much more likely to be dying at, uh, at younger ages. And is part of that as a result of there's exist pre-existing conditions. Is it stressful lives? Is it lack of health care? Yeah, you have all of those factors that uh, that really have this confluence of factors that work together. So we see uh, the pre-existing conditions uh, in the Latino community, diabetes, uh, obesity, heart disease, etc. Uh, then we also find that Latinos are also the group that is that has the highest rates of, uh, non, of not having, uh, healthcare insurance. So that contributes, of course, to the, uh, to, to the pre-existing conditions, uh, worse health outcomes and so forth. Uh, and then you have issues having to do again with where people are working, the kinds of jobs that they have that are, that are, um, at greater risk of contracting the virus and then greater degrees of poverty in, in our, in our communities where you have people that are living closer to each other, and you may have uh, multi-generation homes where you have children, you have parents, you have grandparents, all living under the, the same roof and in closer contact. So when um, the CDC, for example, was talking about that if people caught the, the virus and they should, um, they should self-quarantine and stay in their room, use their ba own bathroom, but we know in the, in the Latino community and with, as well as other communities of color, that is impossible to do because there may be only one bathroom in the whole home. There may be one or two bedrooms and so forth. So people don't have that, that ability to be able to, to self-quarantine. Yeah. I mean, I think this is, you know, thinking about my own childhood home, seven people, one bathroom, <laughs> there yeah. would have been no way. And, and I think there, I mean, I'm interested in what you have to say about the fact that I, I imagine, or at least I remember seeing things that were, 
really engaging news reports, op-eds, it seemed that we're engaging in a kind of victim blaming. And so it's about Latino culture, the way Latinos live. This is why the impacts. And, and, and what would you say in response back to that? Yeah, uh, there it has to do all with uh, uh, conditions that, that I mentioned in terms of poverty, the crowding and so forth. So there's a lot of that. Uh, and with that vic- victim blaming, and I did a, a number of, of interviews, and that is where where I made sure that when reporters went there, that I was going, okay, we can't focus there because that all of a sudden you say it's the individual's fault, so you shouldn't be getting together, et cetera, et cetera. When in reality, you have all these conditions that, uh, that put Latinos and other people of a, of a color in, in, uh, in harm's way. And we know then, uh, that those kind of social networks, social networks have always been very important in the survivability of uh, Latino communities, African Americans, Asians, and uh, as well as um, as immigrant communities as well. So they have always been very, very, very helpful. And we can see that in those kinds of situations, they also have these other kinds, particularly in a, in a pandemic. But one of the things that I kept telling reporters also is, again, that they shouldn't focus on 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 this in terms of the extended families that people had gotten together and, and so forth. Because we saw in the white community, we saw uh, that you had all these college students out there interacting with one another without masks mm-hmm. uh, and uh, people that were totally against wearing masks and so forth. And they were out there and there wasn't none of that kind of pointing the finger and saying, oh, look, it, it's because uh, they're getting together uh, drinking and so forth that is causing deaths in, in the white community. So I'm interested in what happens when we begin to parse out the different types of Latinos, such as thinking about undocumented immigrants or Afro-Latinos or indigenous migrants, or even those from different Latin American or Caribbean countries. Uh, and I don't know if you have that data, but but if you do, what do those numbers tell us about COVID's impact? Yeah, uh, unfortunately, the, the data are very limited and those kind of questions we, we can't address. So uh, the death data that we have have been for all Latino groups, uh, the subgroups put together. And right now we cannot parse out even uh, deaths uh, among females compared to males and, and so forth. So those kinds of questions, I think, are going to be very important in understanding the full impact of, uh, of uh, COVID. Uh, but that might be uh, until after the pandemic and so forth, where, where more data become available. Uh, to address those questions. And I, I'm particularly interested in the breakdown, for example, with um, immigrants and uh, uh, citizens uh, and people born here in the in the U.S. I suspect that because uh, immigrants were more likely to be on the front lines uh, working in industries such as meatpacking uh, industries. And we remember back in, uh, in April and May 2020, where there was just these major outbreak of death. And this is where we find immigrants. Uh, we also find them in agricultural kind of industries, again, that were, that were very hard hit. And fortunately, once the vaccination became available, I was uh, very pleased to see the state of California, for example, take this proactive kind of approach in going to the fields and making the vaccines available to uh, agricultural workers. Uh, because many of those, uh, obviously, have a fear also of going to get a vaccine, mm-hmm. particularly where we see the anti-immigrant um, 
sentiments, the roundups that the, that mm-hmm. the Trump administration did and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Well, and it makes me think what you just said, that, of course, it's not just COVID-19 that kills, but it's racism and xenophobia that kill also. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that relationship between COVID-19 and racism and xenophobia, specifically as it seems to be connected to Latinos. We kind of know a lot about uh, in relation to Asians, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so there has been a lot of uh, attention, uh, particularly with racism uh, that was directed against Asians. But we see that in the in the Latino community as uh, as well, where if people were speaking Spanish, for example, you have all these social media kind of uh, tapes and so forth that you see that uh, Latinos and Latinos being called out for not speaking English and so forth. I think that uh, you see a lot of the assumptions uh, that Latinos are immigrants, that they don't belong here, they, uh, they're here undocumented and so forth. So all that perceptions that uh, affects very much the treatment of, uh, of Latinos, their acceptability into this country, even though we've been here generations and generations and generations, and and uh, most of the Southwest uh, is land that belonged to, to Mexico at, uh, at one point in, in time. Uh, then I think that with that systemic racism also comes the fact that we see high levels of um, percentages in the Latino community that don't have access to healthcare. Texas, one of the states that hasn't expanded uh, Medicaid, even during the pandemic, which makes it difficult for people to get Obamacare. I think that we see it in states like Texas, for example, where the leadership, Governor Abbott, really uh, didn't protect the workers in in this uh, country, in this state, as it was a push to open up Texas for business. And it was on the backs of Latinos disproportionately. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that with the Latino community, the Latino workforce, there is this disposability kind of uh, view and so forth that these are workers that are going to be feeding us, that are going to put f- uh, food on our table and so forth. Uh, and But there was little uh, care, just like previously before the pandemic, in terms of uh, providing for the healthcare needs uh, and, and other kinds of uh, uh, amenities that, that are required. Yeah. And well, so I'm interested in your, you started writing about this very early. And if, if I'm not mistaken, you were one of the first people who was really digging into the numbers and, and really getting that message out there. Uh, a lot of that was published on Latino Rebels. And I'm wondering how, if at all, your work has been received or the kinds of policy impacts perhaps that it has had, at least here in the state of Texas. Yeah, I think, uh, uh, there are probably two sides that, that you see that, that I think, uh, very early on, um, this was, um, when I was doing the, the work and I was trying to get it out as quickly as possible to get that, uh, uh, the information out. And that's when, uh, early on with Latino Decisions also, uh, was mm, publishing yeah. it. And, uh, then Latino Rebels is tied into that. So they, they were also distributing the work and the, um, feedback that was coming from, uh, the Latino community was really very appreciative and really opening eyes and people were spreading the information to make sure that people knew what was going on in the, in the Latino community. I think in the, in here in, in Texas, I don't, I don't think that, that the big three, the Abbott, Paxton and, and, uh, Dan Patrick, because we, we, there was little, uh, concern that was coming across in terms of, uh, the deaths that were taking place in, in the Latino community. 
we remember what was going on here in San Antonio, for example, in July or so, where the numbers were uh, were very high. Our hospitals were filled. The valley uh, also we remember in in June, July, and August, uh, where there were no efforts to try to to control the situation there in terms of the, from the leadership. Uh, if anything, county judges were being uh, were being discouraged and and uh, from from uh, imposing um, uh, stay at home uh, uh, laws, lockdowns, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, I, I think that that was something that the leader, Texas leadership really didn't want to hear. And you even see that it was, um, I think it was until, I think it was about February or so, February or so, where there was a, a commission uh, that looked at the impact of uh, COVID, and they simply mentioned the number of deaths to Latinos without any any emphasis on the reality of what those numbers look like, that there have been only two states in the country where more Latinos have died than whites. Texas and California are those two states, and the report didn't mention any of that. So the information I think that I was uh, publishing and, and so forth getting out there, I think that people in the Latino community, I think progressive uh, scholars and, and others in, in the community were picking that up. But uh, unfortunately, I, I don't think that the, the power structure here in Texas was uh, hearing that or, or wanting to hear it. Yeah, yeah. Unsurprising in some ways there. So I guess um, we just have a couple of minutes left here in the show. And, you know, we're moving now into a time where numbers of new cases are down, hospitalizations are down, deaths nationally are trending downward. And of course, this is all in the United States, the global context is very different in this regard. But if we think about the research that you've done, what's the big takeaway for you now in this historical moment? I think the the big takeaway really is the systemic racism that has been part of this country for so long. I think that the pandemic has exposed a lot of that and people that have been in denial, I think, are coming around to saying that, yes, this is something that uh, that exists. And I, and I think that the, the disproportionate impact that it has had in our, in our community. Uh, and I think that there have also been the lessons that have been learned that in uh, right now, as we have the vaccination that is that is available and so forth, and we still hear that uh, people of color, including uh, Latinos and African-Americans, are disproportionately underrepresented among people who have uh, been vaccinated. And, and this, of course, represents a systemic racism that we found in, in this country. African-Americans for long have been totally denied uh, um, health care uh, or experiments that were carried out on African-Americans and, and so syphilis studies and so forth that put people at risk where there's a distrust of the, of the government. That's the same that we find in the, in the Latino community uh, as well. But we see, I think, that some of those lessons that learned is that if we look at the counties across uh, Texas, we find that the highest rates of vaccinations, the people who have uh, received the vaccinations, are along the border counties. Uh, so that places like Hidalgo County, places like uh, El Paso, about 64, 66% of uh, Latinos, uh, of persons 12 and older have been vaccinated. You see some panhandle counties where you see greater proportions of whites or in the uh, east 
Texas, where there you find 24, 26% of, uh, of persons 12 and older have, uh, have been vaccinated. And I think here it clearly shows the devastation that took place along the border uh, areas, uh, people losing loved ones and, and so forth, where even though that there's continues to be kind of a concern that uh, the Latinos don't want to get vaccinated, that you find that people are taking those precautions, that they, they lost loved ones, where for many people with higher socioeconomic resources or with whites, it has been more theoretical when, when they think about loss of, uh, of people who have died, that it has not hit many as, as close as it has in the Latino community. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for all of this background and for talking through your important research with us, because uh, this is just, it's crucial research, especially for those of us here in Texas. And so uh, thank you so much for being here today, Professor Sainz. Okay, thank you very much for the invitation. Sure. Once again, our guest today was Professor Rogelio Sainz, uh, demography professor at the University of Texas at San Antonio. And I've been your host, Karma Chavez, and this is Latin Experts. Hi all, this is Ashley Nava Monteros, the Communications Associate at Latino Studies. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Make sure to check out the Latino Studies Instagram page. Follow us at Latino Studies UT to keep the conversation going.